Turn, if you would, to the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew. Last week, the Sadducee, the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees once again asked for a sign from Jesus. He refused to give them one. He said, the only sign that's going to be given to you is the sign of Jonah, which he had explained several chapters before, the first time they asked him for a sign, when he told them that Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and the Son of Man would be in the belly of the earth for three days, and then he would come back. That was going to be the sign. So we pick up today in verse uh, 13 of chapter 16 in what might be one of the most important passages in the book of Matthew. So, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi is about 20 or 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It is a truly pagan city. It was a Roman city. It was built to celebrate Roman gods. It was a pagan city. It was renamed after Caesar, but it was originally named after some Greek god or something. So it is a very Gentile city. I suspect Jesus is taking his disciples to get them out of town for a little while to teach them something about who he is. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He looks at his disciples and he's doing market research, okay? (laughs) I've been out there doing all this stuff, and they know when he refers to himself as the Son of Man that he's asking them, who do people think that I am? Y'all have been in the crowds. Y'all have been talking to the people. Y'all have been wandering around. Who do people think that I am? There is not a more important question in all the world from the beginning of time until the end of time, whenever that happens, in our lives and in the lives of those that we come in contact, there is no more important question than who is Jesus? And in fact, even the way we phrase the question is interesting because there are those who will talk about who was Jesus. There was a very well-known pastor at a very well-known church here in Fort Worth a generation ago who preached a sermon. I used to have a copy of it entitled, Who Was Jesus? And he was a great guy. He taught us how to live our lives. He taught us to love one another. He taught us to take care of the poor. He taught us to do great things. And then he died. Who was Jesus? We phrase the question, Who is Jesus? So Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? Who do they say the Son of Man is? And they answer his question. And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. You're a good Jewish audience, good Jewish disciples, You're talking about who Jesus is, and they go, ah, I remember John the Baptist. He speaks just like John the Baptist. He probably has the spirit of John the Baptist that was taken from John the Baptist when he was executed and put on Jesus. Now, this is a little weird, by the way. I mean, if you want to get into the whole subject of reincarnation, this just doesn't work. 
okay? Because Jesus and John the Baptist were at a maximum nine months apart in age. But, you know, Herod worried about this. Herod worried because he had killed John the Baptist, that John the Baptist's spirit was now in Jesus, and Jesus was coming after him, okay? So, answer number one, he is John the Baptist, reincarnated, re-spirited, whatever he wants to be. Answer number two, he is Elijah. Did I get that right? It's not Elijah, it's, it's Elijah, it's not Elisha. Remember last week's sermon, right? He went to great lengths. J comes before S, Elijah becomes before Elisha, okay? Maybe he's Elijah because what happened to Elijah? He didn't die. Elijah and Elijah were out in the wilderness somewhere, running away, doing his things. Elijah was trying to get rid of Elijah, and he couldn't do it. And a chariot came down and took him. He did not die. And there are prophecies that would tell us that Elijah will reappear to bring Jesus into the, into the stage. And guess what? Next chapter, we're going to meet Elijah. Just to give you a heads up. I have no idea how long it'll take us to get there, but next chapter. So maybe he's Elijah, or maybe he's Jeremiah, or some other prophet. They knew he was an important person. They knew he was doing miraculous deeds. They knew he wasn't just some average Joe. He has to be a prophet. So here is the question that we need to understand. Today, who do people say that the Son of Man is or was? We'll take the question either way. I had a teacher teaching a uh, graduate course in the humanities that I took just for the fun of it. She would um, preach, teach, whatever you want to call it, at the Universal Unitarian Church occasionally, and she loved Jesus. She loved Jesus and she loved Socrates. Both spoke the truth to people, both were killed for their trouble because the people didn't want to listen to them. So he was a great teacher and then he died. And we are left with his writings or what his disciples wrote about him so we can emulate his life. That's one possibility today. Now, it's not quite as grand as being a great prophet, but if you're a Muslim, who do you think Jesus is? Jesus is a prophet. He really is. They like Jesus. They're just fed up with Christians who want to make a God out of him. He was a great prophet, second only to Muhammad. So he is a prophet, but that's all he is. What other answers do we have today of who Jesus is? It is interesting if you go looking back into this discussion of trying to discover Jesus. It started in the 1800s, this whole movement of finding the historical Jesus. I'm a historian, and I go to find out the real Jesus, not the Jesus that's been constructed or created by all these church people. I want to find the true Jesus. Now, how do you do that? Since 
the biggest evidence we have is the Bible and the church. In fact, you know, the argument that Jesus didn't really ever exist really doesn't make any sense because if he didn't exist, why is the church here today? But more about that some other time. So the quest for the historical Jesus, as it was called, decided that, okay, I'm going to look at the scriptures as a historian. And I'm going to determine what is true and what is not true. This verse makes sense. This one doesn't. And they came up with numerous criteria to determine which verses were the true story of Jesus. And it's like one author said, what they usually did was start with some grand idea. Jesus was a revolutionary. Then they would find the passages that support that and they'd say, that's the true Jesus. The others were added later to prove their point that Jesus was a true revolutionary or Jesus was a true Marxist, or he was a true Democrat, or he was a true Republican, or he was a true Baptist, or he was a true, or he was a true, or he was, and it went on ad nauseum. Ad nauseum. I'm not going to ask you if you saw it, because I don't want you to see it, but a movie came out many years ago, The Last Temptation of Christ. I did not see the movie. I did read the book, though. And his, the author's, idea of Jesus is that Jesus is Nietzsche's Uberman, Superman. And in the book, God tells Matthew to write certain things about Jesus, and Matthew knows they're not true. And Matthew won't do it. And God, with this claw, grabs him and just starts choking him and says, you're going to write what I tell you to write, whether it's true or not. And in his view, that's what we have in our Gospels. Because in his quest to make Jesus into a particular type of person, it was necessary to explain some scriptures away. And it's fascinating how this works. Even today, I mean, I have you know, a more liberal commentary, and you read it, and it says, obviously these words were added later. Why is that obvious? Why is that obvious? Today's society has to do something about Jesus. They can't just wish him away. C.S. Lewis had an argument that he made, I actually believe he borrowed it from someone else, that Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. And those are the only three possible answers. Let me explain to you how this works. Let's say that I, knowing that I am not God, told you that I was God. Why would I do such a thing? Well, I would want the power I'd want the influence in a lot of modern messianic, I want to be the deity, it involves sex. Okay, let's just say that. So I'm going to tell you that I'm God when I know that I'm not God because I want something from you. That would make me a liar. Or 
I really do believe I'm God, but you know I'm just crazy. I mean, if I stood up here and told you I was God, you'd be looking for some clinic to put me in. I mean, you've heard the story, right, of the asylum, and one guy thought he was Napoleon, and somebody asked him one day, why did you invade Russia? And he responds, God told me to. And this voice comes from down the hall, no, I didn't. If I told you I was God, and I really believed it, you would think I was crazy, wouldn't you? So I'm either a liar, I know I'm not, yet I say it anyway, or I think I am, and I'm nuts. Now, let's look at the gospel presentation of the life of Jesus, does he look like someone who you'd walk up to and say, that guy's nuts? No. But that guy is going to tell us that he is the Son of God. So, he is either a liar, which really doesn't make much sense from our understanding of who he is and the impact that he has had on our world today. He was crazy, or he is who he says that he is. Who does the world say Jesus is today? There's lots of answers, lots and lots of answers. We could have weeks of discussion, but let's go on to the right answer. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Okay, he was doing market research. Who do the people say that I am? And then he looks directly at them and says, but you, you, who do you think that I am? And Peter speaks up. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. Most of us, for most of our lives, probably referred to Jesus as Jesus Christ, as if Jesus was his first name and Christ was his last name. You know, we have multiple names, Jesus had multiple names. In reality, his name is Jesus. That was what his mother wrote on his birth certificate, if they had such things. That's what his mother wrote on this birth certificate. His function, his title was Christ. Christ is the anointed one. Christ is the Greek version of what we would see in the Old Testament as the Messiah. It isn't just a name that you randomly gave to someone. If you were anointed by God, you were the Messiah. You go back to the Old Testament prophets and prophet after prophet after prophet will talk about the coming Messiah. The Jewish community was eagerly waiting for the coming Messiah. 
There were indications that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be born in a particular place, that he would do certain things, that he would heal people, that he would cause the blind to see, that he would raise people from the dead, that all of these things would be put into place. And that would be the Messiah. Now, unfortunately, we've gone over this many, many times. Unfortunately, there was some confusion on the part of the Jewish community about what the Messiah was going to do for them. Why? The Jewish community is surrounded by the Romans, and the Romans are the oppressors. And there are indications that the Messiah would sit on the throne of David, he would renew the kingdom of Israel, and number one at the top of the list, kill all the Romans. And guess what? Jesus did not spend one minute trying to get rid of the Romans. So who the heck is he? But we understand all those Old Testament prophets that Jesus comes as the suffering servant his first time and he will come the second time as the Lord and judge of all the earth. But that's not where we are right now. So Jesus turns to the disciples and says, who do you think that I am? And their answer is, well, Peter's answer is, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Not a Messiah, not some prophet. You are the Messiah sent by God, anointed by God, the Son of the living God. Now, here's my question. Don't read the next verse. How did he know that? How did Peter know that? And you think, well, it should be obvious. Peter saw Jesus walking across the water. Peter saw Jesus take some loaves and some fishes and feed 10,000 people. Peter saw Jesus take some other loaves and fishes and feed 8,000 people. Jesus healed people. He caused the blind to see. He did all these things. Obviously, having looked at the evidence, Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But guess what? There were a lot of other people that saw Jesus heal the sick. There were a lot of other people that saw him heal the blind, to cast out demons. And what did they do? They wanted to kill him. So what's the difference? What is the difference between Peter's response and the response of others? And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let me let you in on a little secret. But be careful with this, but I'm going to let you in on it. When someone acknowledges Jesus as Lord, it's because God has moved in their hearts to convince them that that is true. Without the movement of the Holy Spirit in the world today, we would look at this evidence and we'd go, 
oh, special effects, make a good movie, something, nice story, nice teacher, but it's God who moves in the human heart and says, Peter, that guy over there, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, wait a minute. Does that mean that the actions don't matter? Well, of course they matter. Does that mean that our sharing the gospel doesn't matter? Of course it matters. Why do we share the gospel if at the end of the day the person is only going to respond if God moves in their heart? Because God has told us to and because God uses that as his instrument to move the hearts of human beings. What it does is it frees us from thinking we have to save somebody. You're not going to save anybody. God is going to save them. God is going to illuminate the scripture to them. God is going to take your feeble words, wrap them up, and move it into the heart of a human being. And they're going to go, wow. And you're going to go, wow. I said stupid stuff, and they still believed because we have this fear that if I don't know the answer to every possible theological question anyone should ever ask, if I can't tell you the difference between quest number one for the historical Jesus and quest number two for the historical Jesus, if I don't know all that stuff, I can't present the gospel. God will take our human feeble efforts, wrap it up in the Holy Spirit, and move it into the hearts of a human being and that's how he illuminates his word in the lives of other people. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but God did. When we understand the things of God, it has always amazed me, always amazed me. You have some biblical scholar. And this is not a discussion of all biblical scholars, by the way. This is just a discussion of some. You have some atheists who are great biblical scholars in the same way that you would have an atheist who might be a great scholar regarding Shakespeare. You know, they know all the words. They know what the works mean. They know how to, it all fits together. They know, and you go, how can that possibly be? How can you be a scholar on the Bible and not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? It's because either God has not revealed it to them or God has revealed it to them and they've said, no, no. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. In today's world, in today's world, there is no more important question than who do you think Jesus is. You know, I can sit here and I can talk about the broad discussions of these people think he's this, these people think he's that. The Mormons think that he's a human being just like me and his brother, the devil, Satan. I mean, we can have all these discussions about what all these other people think. And it's fascinating, by the way. I mean, it's, it really is. You'd start keeping your list of working throughout all the possible combinations. 
But at the end of the day, Jesus is going to look you in the eye and say, yeah, that's interesting. But who do you think that I am? Because that is going to be the question that is going to determine eternity for you. When we get to heaven, it's not going to be, I want to get in because I'm a member of Christ Chapel Bible Church, great church, great pastor, great staff, great people. We sing good songs. Life is good. You ought to let me into heaven. It's not going to be, I went to church every day of my life from the day I was born until the day I die. You ought to let me into heaven. What it's going to be is what do you believe about Jesus? At the end of the day, who do you think that Jesus is or was? And your choice of words there probably demonstrates who or what you think Jesus is or was. Now, the next four verses are some of the most controversial verses in the entire Bible. The entire division between the Catholic and Protestant church today can probably be traced back to these four verses. I know the Reformation was about grace. Salvation by grace alone versus salvation by works, a re-examination of the book of Romans by Martin Luther and his preaching and teaching about grace. And that's true. But if we look at the structure of the Roman Catholic Church today, it is drawn from the next four verses. So, be careful, it's a minefield. And I'm going to go through and step on all the minds. Okay? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Wait, I thought his name was Simon. Yep. God has this tendency of changing people's names. You are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You are Peter. You are the rock. That's what Peter means. You are the rock, and on this rock... I will build my kingdom, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, you are Peter, and on this rock, what is that rock? There's three possible answers. I just heard two of them. You're not going to tell me the Roman Catholic one, right? There's three possible answers that most people look at. Number one, Peter. Upon this rock, upon you, Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter in the Roman Catholic tradition is the first pope. The pope is the bishop of Rome. The bishop of Rome has authority over all the other bishops. Therefore, the pope 
has authority over the Catholic Church. The Pope can bind and he can loose. He can bind a person so that your sins are condemning you or he can free you from them. Answer number one is the person of Peter. Now it is interesting. We can back this up a little bit and kind of agree with the answer. If we're talking about Peter as a representative of the apostles, remember there's 12 apostles, one of them's going to kill himself after he, you know, gets Jesus in trouble. One of them's going to kill himself, they're going to replace him, you don't hear much about that guy, and God's going to replace him with Paul, okay? We are told in Ephesians that the church is built upon the teaching of the, of the apostles. What are the teachings of the apostles? It's the recorded life of Christ in the, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. It is the letters of the apostles in the rest of the New Testament. Those are the teachings that the apostles got from Jesus that they wrote down in the scripture. So if I take Peter as a representative, because he spoke first, which he has a tendency to do, sometimes for the good, sometimes not so good. We're going to actually see that in next week's lesson when Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, there's less polite ways of saying what he was really saying to him. Okay? But as a representative of the apostles, we can say, yes, the church is built on the teachings of the apostles. We can go with that. In which case, we could buy that as a possible answer. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that Peter was the head honcho of the apostles. That Peter had the authority to tell the rest of the church what to do. We see a lot of Peter in the first half of the book of Acts. The second half of the book of Acts, not so much. Paul kind of takes over. When Paul writes to the church at Galatia, that we see in the book of Galatians, he points out that he looked Peter in the face and said, you're wrong. Repent. So there's no indication that anybody was bowing down to the authority of Peter as the head of the apostles. But the Catholic Church, in order, the Roman Catholic Church, in order to have their hierarchy and their structure believe that Peter, as the first pope, has authority, and the second pope was taught by the first pope, laid his hands on him, you're the pope, next pope, next pope, and what they have is an unbroken chain, an apostolic succession going back to Peter, and therefore he is the head of the church. We do not believe that. We do not believe that there's any scripture that warrants the authority of the Bishop of Rome over the church. It is a social construct, an organization that was meant to mimic the Roman Empire. So Rome was obviously the head of the Roman Empire. The church at Rome should be head of the church, okay? It made sense, but it's just probably not very biblical. So one possible answer He's talking about Peter himself. 
which if you take it halfway and say he's the representative of the apostles, we could agree with that. But answer number two, what did Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, good job. You got the right answer. You made the confession that tells me that you understand who I am. And then he turns to Peter and says, Peter, you're now going to be Peter, upon this confession that you have made, I will build my church. Let me let you out on a secret, okay? We're going to get to heaven, and there's going to be some Baptist, and there's going to be some Methodist, and there's going to be some members of the Church of Christ, there's going to be members of Bible churches, there's going to be Catholics, there's going to be this, and there's going to be that. Why? What does it take to get into the kingdom of heaven? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's about it. I've told you in here before, if you go read the doctrinal statement of our church, you know, it's whatever it is, 10 pages long, and you ought to read it at some point. But then you look at what you have to believe to get into this church, to actually join this church. You know what that is? I'm a sinner. I was saved by grace. Jesus Christ saved me. Come on, join our church. Wait a minute. You mean I don't have to understand all? No, you don't. We'll work with that later. What does it take to join the church? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. God, the Holy Spirit, moved in your heart and illuminated it, and you said, wow, that's what it is. We talk today about the universal church, and we talk about local churches. And the word is used both ways in the scripture, and that's fine. But sometimes we get confused. Because we begin to think that the church of God, the church, is planted at this corner of Birchman Avenue. And guess what? It's not. There are believers in every nation of this world worshiping today. And guess what? They're in the church. Why? Because they made the confession. I will have to say... That's the answer that I prefer to what did he mean by upon this rock I will build my church. The confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's a third answer though, and it does make sense too, and that is the rock is Christ. Christ himself. Now it's interesting because some of the commentators have to add a little bit to the scripture to get to that point. Like, while he was saying that, he was pointing at himself. And since we have no indication where he was pointing when he said that, that makes it a little more difficult to understand. But we know that Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation of the church. We know that to be true. And there's lots of other scriptures. So what is the answer to all of this? I'm going to take all of them. The church is built on the teaching of the apostles, on the confession of who Jesus is, and it is certainly built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
without question, without question. So, once again, who do we say that he is? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, and by the way, there is a little discussion here about Peter and rock, and they're not exactly the same words. One of them is a big rock, and one of them is a little rock, okay? Peter's the little rock, but we'll go there another time. And I will build my church. Church. This word just pops up out of the blue at this point. We're going to see it again in the book of Matthew, I think one more time, not much more. We'll see it in the Acts, we will see it in the epistles. In the epistles, it's very clear when Paul says this is a mystery. This is not something that was seen in the Old Testament. It was hinted at, but it was hidden. And the mystery is that Jew and Gentile who confess that Jesus is Lord are part of the same body. Remember last week's lesson? The Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and says, I need my child healed. He said, go away, woman. That's not that loose a translation. She was a pagan. She was a Gentile. But guess what? Because of her faith, he answered her request. And he commended her because of her faith. He then goes down to a Gentile community and feeds 4,000 people. In the Gentile community, he's healing. Why would a good Jew do that? Because he understood the mystery of the church. And the mystery is, is that the Jewish community who believe and the Gentile community that believe are going to be merged together into the church. Now, this causes difficulties in the early church. You know, the Apostles go out and they start winning converts among the pagans. And they're pagans. What do we do with them? Well, we're going to talk about that when we do the book of Galatians next. Because one train of thought was, let's make them good Jews, and then we can make them good Christians. And Paul said, loosely translated, to heck with that. You're not going to do that. So, the church is the mystery revealed. It is the body of Christ. It is composed of all those who confess Jesus and have accepted Jesus for the salvation of their souls. And guess what? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is an interesting picture. First off, it's a very military picture. What does this tell us? Somebody is fighting against us. We've seen this in the life of Christ. This should not surprise us. This should not surprise us that somebody is trying to stop him. And from the day the church was created... And for want of a better day, let's just say Pentecost, from the day the church was started, somebody was trying to stop it. And as we understand that God is behind the church, Satan himself is behind those who are trying to stop the church. We just have to accept the fact that there is a spiritual battle going on. 
If we don't, we've surrendered. There is a battle, and the battle is the church against the gates of hell. Now, there's all kinds of discussion about what the gates of hell are, okay? You picture hell over there, and it has big gates. And we, the believers, are pounding on that gate to drag people out of the grips of Satan into the world to save them. Okay, that's one picture. But the gates in the Bible are kind of the, the symbol of my defense and my protection. And Satan is in this world and he thinks he controls it. And guess what? The church is going to win. The church is going to win against that gate. I've always found this fascinating. If we're going to win, why do we bother fighting? Well, because God told us to. Because God told us that's what life is. Remember our discussion several years ago about Joshua going into the promised land? I always loved this. I'm going to give you the land, God says. I'm going to give it to you. Now go fight him and take it. Wait a minute. We're mixing our metaphors here. If you're giving it to me, it's a present wrapped up with a bow under the tree. I take it. But you see, God is making us into a particular kind of person. That is a person who will rely on him in the midst of the battle. Not somebody sitting in a lazy boy chair waiting for the presents to be given to us. You don't see that anywhere in the scripture. You don't see it in the life of Christ. You don't see it in the life of Peter. You don't see it in the life of Paul. You go back to the prophets of the Old Testament. They were attacked all the time. Yet God told them they would win. If you were at the funeral on Tuesday, you remember what Ted says at every funeral. We mourn, but not as those who have no hope. In the spiritual realm, we fight, but we do not despair because we know of the hope that has been given us that the battle will, has been won. We live in a world that wants to stop the church. It should not surprise us. It just shouldn't. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, spiritual beings. That person who is fighting against you they're not the problem. They're just a victim of the gates of hell. And guess what we're supposed to do? Pray for them. Do good to them. Guess what? It's like heaping burning coals on their head, the scripture says. It will purify them. It'll tick them off. I don't know. Maybe both. You don't ever know. We're out of time.
I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I believe he's talking here to the church, not to Peter as the first pope. I will give you the kings of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That is a really strange passage. Maybe we should talk about it next week. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, into our world. I pray, Lord, that we, like Peter and the other apostles, would recognize Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of the living God. Thank you for the power that you've bestowed upon the church. I pray, Lord, that we would trust and rely on you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.